Welcome to the Travel Brand Podcast. I am Winton. I hope you are well today. First of all, I would like to say congratulations to Edgar Martinez for being inducted to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It's about time. He was an incredible ball player. Congratulations. I would also like to congratulate the United States government for opening back up today on a Friday. Kind of odd, but it's open. Now people can collect their paychecks and hopefully put food on their tables, put gas in their cars, etc. Pelosi has put Mr. Donald Trump de Dumpty in check. Now I'd like to talk a little bit today about assimilation. Back in the 1800s, the United States government came up with this slogan. Actually, it was some general or some dude that said, Kill the Indian, save the man. Now, this was all about trying to save the white man, not the Indian. Because, you see, the Indian just would not go away. There were several times in history that they thought they killed us all off, and then they would take over the, the land, and then the Indians would just reappear. And the whites would get damn, I thought we got rid of all them guys, and here they are again. There must be a solution. I know. We'll put them all in boarding schools, and we'll slap the Indian out of them. We're going to start with the children. So they would come onto the reservation, corral up all the children, and send them off to boarding school, cut their hair, and put them in clothing that matched the whites, and force them to speak the English language. My grandmother was born in 1918, and she recalled that when she was in the first or second grade, they would slap her hands because she was speaking her native tongue. That was less than a 100 years ago. The whites were still trying to slap the Indians out of us. Slap the Indian out of the Indian, man. So when they started to corral the Indian people up to take them to these schools... They had to make sure that they were young enough to where they could not resist because the young men, the teenagers, and a little older would fight back and rebel and make it less easy for the whites to turn us into whites. So this went on for ever, and now they have us all pretty much assimilated. I live next to two tribes and I don't see any Indians. We're like ghosts, man. And then if I happen to be down at the local grocery store, and I see an Indian, I recognize them, and I just give them a nod. It's like, they want to keep you on the res, man. They want to keep you down. I get it. By keeping the Indians on the reservation, they can keep them in check. In other words... When they're on the res, they can reap all the benefits of being an Indian, number one, health care. See, if I was living on my reservation and I got hurt, I had to go to the hospital, they would cover me. But since I don't live on the reservation, and why would I want to live on the reservation? It's poverty, man. It's poverty. There's nothing for me on the reservation. Once my grandmother died, she left me her little tiny trailer on one quarter acre of land Immediately, the tribe took that little piece of land and says, No, you can't have that. You don't live here. 
So essentially on that little quarter acre, my grandmother's trailer sits. And I put that in my cousin's name. And now she lets one of my other cousins live there for free. I'm not sitting here saying that the reservation is bad. I'm just saying it's not for me. Because there is no work there. Well, I shouldn't say that if I was one of the family. I could probably get a job working at the Indian Center, making 13 bucks an hour, and living in the same old place, doing the same old thing, having my dish network. There's no future there. So when I moved away back in 2001, I sobered up and moved out. I'm like, I got to get out of here, man. There's nothing here for me. And my grandmother encouraged me to leave. She says, yes, leave. There's nothing here for you. And I look back now and I see the same people doing the same thing, working the same job, making the same money, not having anything, don't own anything. The reservation owns it. And if the reservation doesn't own it, the federal government owns it. So what do you have? Nothing. Another example is this. When my grandmother passed away, she left me what I thought was 97 acres. But after it's all broken down and busted up and cut up into little pieces it turned out to be something like 33 acres of federal land that is useless to me it's held in trust by the federal government there's nothing for me to do with it it just sits there nothing if I wanted to have it logged off I couldn't do that because I'd have to get permission by some of the other owners to do so and if I wanted to live there I'd have to get permission from the other owners of this said 97 acres to lease it. Ridiculous. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. So what I gather from all of that is the federal government wanted the native peoples to believe that they were getting something that was homesteaded by Pitch Jack, one of my ancestors, but it's land that is held in trust and we can't do anything with it. If the government really wanted to give us some land, they should have given us some land that was at least accessible because now that land is divvied up between probably a hundred people. Some people have like less than an eighth of an acre and each time somebody dies, it's left to somebody else and it's just there. The best part of said property sits on the waterfront so one of the families says, Oh no, this part's mine. I'm the one that owns the beachfront property. No, you don't. Everybody and anybody who has their name on that said property owns just as much as that beachfront property as you. And you know who you are. Hey, I got a really good idea. Let's put a wall around it. Let's build a wall, man. That'll keep everybody out. Or will it keep everybody in? That's the question. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. See, I don't have a problem with them building the wall down there along the Mexican border in Texas. I don't have a problem with that at all. The problem is this. Who's going to pay for it? Well, the taxpayers are. Because Mr. Trumpy Dumpty went ahead in his run for the presidency. says, the Mexicans are going to pay for that wall. That was the second dumbest thing I've ever heard. But if they do go ahead and decide to build that wall, they should have the prisoners at least put up the labor force to build that wall. I mean, you have prisoners in this country who are just lounging around, taking her easy, 
doing whatever they do in prison. Put them to work, man. Use them as a labor force to build that wall. I mean, come on, man. You could save probably a couple billion just in labor because you know how the government pays for good labor. I mean, back in the day, they would spend, what, $50,000 for one toilet seat. It wouldn't cost $5 billion to build that wall. Hell, I'm an unemployed superintendent. Send me down there and I'll help be a superintendent. Make sure that wall gets erected correctly and painted red, white, and blue. I'll even oversee them putting the name Trump on there just so he could sleep well at night. If only 500 years ago the Indians would have built a wall, now that would have been something, but you wouldn't have been able to keep them out. The whole thing is this. Trump is calling the people coming across the borders a national crisis. It's been going on for 500 years. So we've been in crisis for 500 years. He talks about the human trafficking that's going on in Mexico. Well, I would have to say, Mr. President, that most of the human trafficking is coming from this country. There are evil men out there kidnapping our daughters, our sons, our grandchildren, and taping their mouths, tying them up, and sending them overseas. Probably Russia, Ukraine, China, Japan... And yes, even sent south to Mexico. And let's not talk about the war on drugs. Most of the drugs are prescribed right here in this country. But the problem is don't blame it on another country. Yeah, they bring in some cocaine and some marachine and all that good stuff, you know. But a lot of the problem is choices, man. You don't need to drink. You don't need to take those pills. You don't need to shoot that needle in your arm. I'm not one of them guys that gives a rats, man, if you're going to use and if you end up dying. That's sad, but, dude, it's not anybody else's fault, man. It's your own fault. I'll put it like this. I'm a raging, drunken alcoholic when I drink. So, I don't drink. For everybody's best interest... And safety, I might add, I do not drink alcohol. Because, see, when I start drinking alcohol, for some reason, I always put myself in a position of where I have to drive home. And once I've had 12 or 18 or 24 beers, I make bad decisions. And I've had numerous drunken driving charges, and thank God I've never, ever killed anybody. And I can't even go to Canada. Canada says, what? You've had a drunk driving? Oh, no, no, no. You're a felon. And we don't allow felons in our country. I did trick him a couple times, though. I did take a canoe journey. Paddled with the Quileute tribe one time from Quileute. Went up into Nia Bay, the Macaw Nation, and pulled a canoe from Nia Bay across into Canada to Vancouver Island. Went all the way up into Housett. It was amazing. And you know what else was amazing? Every beach we landed on, there were some white people. And they all wanted to take a little pull on the canoe. So, I'm the lead puller. I'm the one who sets the pace, man. So, I'm pulling. And there was a couple of white people in the back. And they had their life jackets on, just in case we flipped over. And I'm pulling. And I'm setting the pace. I'm setting the pace fast and hard. After about five minutes, they're like, slow down. We're going too fast. This is too hard. We want to enjoy the view. And I'm thinking, hell no, man. I'm a warrior. At that moment, I was a warrior. 
And for a brief few minutes of my life, I felt like I was doing something that mattered. And for those two weeks I was on that journey, I was sober, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, and I actually felt like I was closer to the earth. I felt like I was closer to my fellow man. But when it was over, it was business as usual, and I noticed that all the other people who were on this canoe journey, this amazing canoe journey, was back to business as usual. They didn't practice any of the things they practiced on the journey. The singing was over. The drumming was over. It was all back to regular way of life. And that was truth and testimony that assimilation worked. Assimilation is alive and well in the United States of America. Because if I wanted to set up a teepee right next to the highway and live as an Indian, how long would I be able to do that? How long would it take for the police to come and arrest me and have me tossed in the can for what? Trespassing? If I wanted to live like a real Indian, I would have to go up to that land that was held in trust by the federal government and live there. Off the grid, man. Off the grid. But I couldn't do it. I don't have them engine skills. That reminds me of the time that the Tlingit Indians, or was it the Tlingit Indians in Alaska, said they were going to banish a couple of their young men to an island because they were being bad boys. And this joker by the name of Rudy James convinced a federal judge in Snohomish County that they were going to banish these boys to an island, and that's where they had to live for 18 months because they robbed a cab driver. It all turned out to be a hoax. Rudy James wasn't even a tribal judge. It also turns out that the Tlingit tribe never even had the history of banishing people from their tribe. So it was really just one big fat joke to get some publicity for Mr. Rudy James. He was hoping somehow to profit from the whole thing, but in the meantime, the Tlingit said they were extremely embarrassed by this fellow. But why did they allow him to get that far with it? He was supposedly a tribal member who lived in Seattle, but they allowed that to happen, so shame on them. He pulled the wool over their eyes like the whites did to them a couple hundred years ago. The fact of the matter is the Russians did it first, and the Russians sold the United States, Alaska, with all the Indians in it and all the gold in it and all the fish in it. Isn't there an old saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Those Indians should have took Alaska back from the Russians. Oh no, wait. They were already assimilated by then. So this brings me all the way back to assimilation. So the first boarding school opened in 1879 in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that's where the end of the American Indian ways began. Mr. Pratt. He was a colonel. He's the one that said, kill the Indian, save the man. And after a while, what he tried to convince people was what he meant was kill the Indian spirit so you can save him from himself because he's a savage. He doesn't know how to live. He doesn't know how to farm. He doesn't know how to use the land that was given to him by God. We will slap him. We will beat him. We will make sure that he loses any identity of being an Indian. So what they would do to these young children is if they spoke their native tongue, they would make them kneel on rice on a hardwood floor for hours at a time 
until they had finally learned how to speak English. Another tactic was to starve the Indians who were on the reservation so the parents would practically beg the whites to take their children to these schools so they wouldn't starve to death because by this time they had made the Indians so dependent that they couldn't feed themselves. They had stripped any way of life that they had known for thousands and thousands of years and beat them down, took their spirit, and made them absolutely dependent like children. I mean, what else were they to do? They wanted to live. They wanted their children to live. So they had to give in. The smallpox had already decimated them by the millions. Starvation had already taken its toll on millions of Indians. And let us not forget, in the 1830s, the Trail of Tears. Now, this just wasn't one trip. This was several trips. And it was estimated that over 100,000 Indians were marched while shackled together for thousands of miles. And it's estimated that at least 15,000 of them died on the way. And when they died, they kicked them off of the trail and left them there to rot. Now, all of this really started because they found gold in Georgia in 1829, right where they put them there, Cherokee. Now they decided, well, now we're going to have to move you. We're going to have to scoot you along to the west over that way, a couple thousand miles, so we make sure you're clear of that there gold. And apparently those gold mines were producing over 300 ounces of gold a day. One day. 300 ounces. That's a lot of gold, man. And I don't think that the Indians had a monetary value on gold. So in reality, they could have left them there and just taken the gold. So nowadays, you still have the issue where the whites are going onto the reservations to frack for oil. Now, I don't know much about fracking, but apparently it's very, very bad for the water. Very, very bad for the earth. And in fact, some tribes are allowing this to happen because they're so poor, they need that money. Because some reservations are very, very poor. High unemployment rate, high drug use, high alcoholism, rape, starvation. See, a lot of tribes don't get to have that casino, man. They don't get to have that extra money brought in. So, of course, they're going to, some council members will say, yeah, if you're going to give us, let's say, a couple thousand bucks a month per person for the next hundred years, hell yeah, bring that money on. We'll go ahead and pay the consequences later. Mother Earth, she'll be all right. And besides that, if you don't agree to the terms, the whites can possibly, very possibly, the government can step in and say, not eminent domain, we're going to just take it anyway. So you might as well get what you can get and bank that money now. Like my grandmother used to say, better make hay while you got daylight or something like that. So here we are again. I went on a crazy rant and I hope I made some sense. I do not know a whole lot, but I do know this. The stinking New England Patriots are in the freaking Super Bowl again. And I can't stand it. I cannot stand the New England Patriots. The ones who kill me, the fans that kill me, are the ones who jumped on the bandwagon when the New England Patriots got good. Got people living out here in Washington that have relations that live over in Boston. And they are huge Huge New England Patriot fans. Give me a break, brah. I'm a Hawk fan till death. 
I watched the Seahawks play their very, very first game ever, and I will always be a Hawk fan. Okay, I'll quit crying now, but I want to thank all you people for listening. I hope I corrected my volume issues for those who could not hear me very well last time. And you can email me at uwinton.elwa at thetribalbrandpodcast.com. Peace.